0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of September 2022. Just a few days past the fall equinox. We are into the dark half of the year. It's a good time to find vagrant birds that have gone in the wrong direction or got blown off course. If you see any birds that look unusual to you, I'd love to hear about them. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail dot com. Or if you'd like to keep up with the birds in Sitka a little more generally, you can join the Sitka Birds Facebook group. Uh, just search for Sitka Birds on Facebook. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Britta Jensen. She'd been here in Sitka earlier this summer with a team to do some sampling of Mount Edgecombe volcanic ash. They would like to better understand the eruptive history, the frequency, and the timing of eruptions of Mount Edgecombe over the past however many thousand years. I had a chance to get out in the field and observe some of their work, and I thought it would be fun to talk with Britta about the work that she and her students are beginning to do. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with Britta, giving a brief introduction of herself.
1: My name is Britta Jensen. I'm an associate professor at the University of Alberta uh, in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. And uh, I guess, simply put, I really like geology and especially volcanoes.
0: (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I met you, I guess, two summers ago now when you came up uh, as part of a uh, an outing, I guess, organized by Jason Briner, who I've previously spoken to for the show, uh, to look at some of the Mount Edgecom, uh, stuff there and look at. I, I just remember you sort of, sort of reluctantly at first because I don't think you had all your tools, but it was almost like you couldn't help yourself. You saw an ash outcrop and you're like, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta look at this." <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting trip. Um, yeah, you're correct. This was organized by Jason. Uh, last year, it was actually, for me, a culmination of an interest I've had in edgecom for, oh my goodness, what year is it now? 2022, almost 10 years, where I was roped into a project very willingly with a PhD student and she was working on some marine cores off of Kruzoff Island for a very different reason, but found a lot of volcanic ashes in these cores. And I ended up working with her on this, which first roped me into being really interested in Mount Edgecombe and the volcanic history of this place. And this was back, oh my goodness, we started this in 2012, I think. I've been just fascinated by the area since then. And then last year, when Jason organized this trip, I had an opportunity to actually go up to Sitka and see the area in person. And it was amazing. Unfortunately, Air Canada lost my baggage on the way up, which is why there was that slight hesitancy because I didn't have all the tools I needed to go crazy on the outcrops like I wanted
0: to. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I remember making a run to the airport to grab your grab your bag when it arrived, <laughs> like on day two or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the, yeah, I mean, I guess for a long time, there's been the story of Mount Edgum, uh that, you know, I guess us locals have understood that it was active at some point in time. And there are some um, uh, local native slinget stories, uh, you know, about that the name of it means blinking and that it was at least somewhat active in the uh, span of their sort of oral oral history knowledge and experience here. But generally speaking, it was considered to be dormant. Uh, and then within the last year, uh, completely apart from the project that that Jason was getting started and that you were looking at, there was this excitement with, oh, there's this earthquake swarm. Oh, it looks like there's actually magma moving underneath the ground. So uh, um, you know, I know you're looking at at older deposits and and that sort of thing, but it seems like I, I imagine that that understanding that can also contribute to an understanding of what the future might hold as well, and and maybe that uh, makes it more likely that some of the work you've been looking at will will uh, be able to develop further.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why we do what we do when it comes to looking at ash deposits from volcanoes is, you know, there. there's some volcanoes that are incredibly active and they erupt all the time. You know, you think of Mount Etna in Italy and, you know, there's lots of witnesses and people are watching this volcano go crazy constantly. But we have a lot of volcanoes that are a little bit more sporadic and over human lifespans, their activity, it's not as predictable. And that's where the work that we do is quite important because we look at the geologic record and we go back and we look at the deposits from these volcanoes, the ash beds that they have produced in the past. We try to figure out when they produced them and it gives us hopefully a little bit of a sense of what their past activity has been, which, you know, hopefully, I say a lot of hopefully here because, you know, the earth is definitely unpredictable, but will give us a little bit insight into potentially what we might expect going forward. And one of the things that had always really struck me about Edgecombe is when I had the opportunity to first start working on it, we were looking largely at um, eruptions that occurred after the ice sheets retreated in the vicinity of the mountain and Sitka about you know sixteen, fifteen thousand years ago, and then we saw a whole series of eruptions that occurred. We have a lot of ash deposits in the marine cores, which is what I first um, started working on. but these are also the same deposits that blanket the Sitka area that everyone is so familiar with. but these stopped. I mean, to be honest, we, we actually don't actually have a, a really good idea of when they really did stop. But the idea is that, you know, those eruptions, this flare-up of eruptions stopped maybe around 12,000, 13,000 years ago. And then since then, the activity in terms of science has been very poorly understood and this is one of the reasons why Edgecombe was listed as dormant. Um, there was some mapping that suggested that maybe there was an eruption 9,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, but it was really poorly understood. And for myself and my research group, um, I have to give the clinket a, a lot of uh, kudos here their oral histories and the name of the volcano really suggested to me that there might have been more activity during more recent times that we were aware of. And that's um, one of the reasons I've been so interested in coming back and and studying the deposits and uh, just looking at the volcano and everything around Sitka the last couple of years.
0: Mm. Yeah, I just from having a chance to hang out with you all last year and then, then you were back again this summer with Jim Bechtel and, uh, you know, especially the talking with Jim and you this summer, my, my sense is that the the current thought is it's much more complicated than has been previously been reported, <laughs> you know, and, and how that actually looks in practice, like what, what all that turns out to be that, you know, more complicated the, the sequence of eruptions and the timings and all of those things and the locations. Even, I remember Jim saying that he found what something like four previously unmapped cinder cones in a week over on kruzoff And uh, he was pretty excited about that. And so all of these things are just, it's just more complicated. And so maybe there really hasn't been that much work done. You know, there was enough, there was a fair amount of work done in the eighties as I understand it. And that forms the baseline for our sort of current understanding, but, but maybe, yeah, maybe it's more complicated <laughs> than had been reported.
1: I think that is a pretty good summary of it. And, you know, generally <laughs> not a bad summary of a lot of the work that we do. But it was mapped in the 80s and um, into the 90s. And, and people looked at certain deposits and the, the really big ones that happened around 13,500 years ago which are are really significant eruptions, um but they're also somewhat unusual in the sense that they're they're probably a lot bigger than anything we would maybe potentially expect from the volcano going forward right now um, I'm just going to say right now that's huge speculation, but <laughs> um, you know but since that time you're correct, there has been very little work and the work that had been done on it was largely, um, almost secondary. I would see, I would say where people who have been working in the region, looking at, um, trying to understand, you know, how the glaciers have, how far out they've come and how deglaciation affected, um, the ocean and sediment going into the ocean and changing of ocean currents. A lot of research has been focused on that. And when they go out and they collect the marine sediment cores and they find a lot of ash beds that appear to be coming from Edgecombe, I think that really was, um, I guess, maybe a, a suggestion that, some of that initial mapping that had been done in the eighties and into the nineties was just scratching the surface, and that things were much more complicated than we had
0: thought mm. yeah yeah i, I so uh, i'm I'm curious about that, and I guess maybe a question that I want to start with in exploring that a little more is just the the mechanics of of what happens when when these ash falls deposit. Like my experience with fresh ash was when I was, well, I guess I would have been about six or seven because Mount, uh, Mount St. Helens blew uh, in 1981. And I had an uncle, a great uncle that lived in Eastern Washington and we went by. And I remember there just being this layer of Powder essentially is what it seemed like. I still have a jar of it on a shelf that I collected when I was that age. It was this Mount St. Helens ash. And of course, I was aware in my mind of volcanic ash being what's around here, but it's generally speaking orange. Uh, You know, there's some reds and blacks and kind of things, but but most of it seems to be fairly orange here. Uh, But I realized that I don't really have any idea of how that came out of the mountain and initially fell like is that what it looked like when it started or is it is there over time a process of of um changes that happen as it settles and maybe cements a little bit and water runs through it over hundreds and thousands of years like do do you have a sense of the of the sort of the mechanical process of of these deposits and and what happens to them over time
1: um yeah so sorry matt but it was May 18th, 1980. Oh, okay,
0: 1980. Yeah, 1980. Fair enough. yeah, So I was probably six then. It was probably yeah. 1981 when we, when we visited.
1: I was one year old. So, so oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, a life-defining event. Uh, yes. So, first of all, Sitka is actually quite close to Edgecombe. Um, in terms of like as the crow flies, so when you think about maybe where you were with your uncle collecting ash from Mount St. Helen's, as opposed to where Sitka is relative to Edgecombe, um you're you're quite a bit closer in terms of Sitka, so uh, oh, I'm gonna throw a number out that's in my head, and it may be completely wrong. But I'm thinking that as the crow flies, Sitka's within about 20 kilometers of Edgecombe. And um, if you, where was your uncle in Washington State?
0: So Moses Lake?
1: Yeah. So you're, you're tens of kilometers further away. So Ashfall finds, not surprisingly, as you move more distant from the volcano simply through the, the mass of the material that's being erupted. And um, if you want to see deposits that are more equivalent to kind of the size, and we're comparing this to Mount St. Helens, you would actually want to go um, into the national forest and make sure you're within about 15 kilometers of the volcano. Um, and you'll see that the the pumice fragments and everything are just, they're a lot coarser. They're a lot larger than what you would have seen uh, when you collected that ash from your uncle's place. And the other big difference is, is uh, and this is something that's new for me because I generally have worked on ash deposits in areas where the climate is quite dry or we have a lot of permafrost and um, climates that are a lot colder and they tend to be much better preserved. But we're in a temperate climate in Sitka. so And glass, which is the biggest component of an asphalt in many uh, situations, is actually not very resistant to weathering. So the natural processes that happen over time to break things down. So... Um, glass tends to break down to clay. And around the Sitka area, when you look at the Edgecombe deposits, especially the lighter colored ones, um, which are a little bit higher in an element we call silica, they are really vulnerable to that breakdown. And they're really clayey and they feel very compact, but it's also where potentially a lot of the failures and landslides are happening. And I, I'm a hundred percent certain this is nothing that locals have not heard before. You know, it's a bit of a mess. It's really mucky. So this material is very altered. Um, And it's not as it would have been when it was first deposited. Does that make any sense at all?
0: yeah yeah so and the weathering that was something that confused me for a while because I thought weather had to do with uh weather, <laughs> and turns out weathering can be chemical weathering uh, and things that are happening below the surface, which isn't something I had realized until a, a little while ago. so the glass I mean we think about using clay to make glass you know ceramics essentially uh, I guess it so then it makes sense that it could go the other direction. I just never. <laughs> You know, I always thought that ceramics are you know remarkably stable um, but you know maybe that's maybe that's true over human lifetimes, but uh you know over geologic scales that it breaks down into clay again over time just through this process of these things happening at, at, on the chemical level
1: yeah, um well, the ceramics we make are very poor in water and they're fired at very high temperatures, so they're a little bit more resilient. But when a volcano erupts, it emits magma, which is a liquid. It's molten rock, essentially. And um, in that molten rock, there might be some minerals. But essentially, when it's erupted, it cools almost instantaneously and it forms glass. And that's, you know, the pumice that we're familiar with. And... That pumice is very porous. And in, you know, when it was, for example, we go back 13,500 years ago and we look at some of the largest eruptions that came out of Edgecombe. So, the Mount Edgecombe Day Site, as we call it in the scientific community, um, which is the really large, I guess, kind of orangey, light colored layers that you see around Sitka a lot more. When they were originally deposited, they probably would have been grains, you know, greater than one centimeter, would have been very um, uh, porous. And water, because you guys get a lot of water in Sitka, would have preferentially moved through them because they're porous. There's a lot of spaces because when a volcano erupts, it has you know, a lot of gases in it. And as those gases escape and that magma cools, you get, um, well, you get pumice, which has a lot of holes in it. So you get a preferential movement of water through these deposits. Wherever you have water, you tend to have higher rates of weathering. And in a temperate environment where you are a little bit... Um, warmer and you're, you're not quite as cold as you are in other parts of Alaska, that weathering is accelerated. And glass and some of the minerals, actually, that are also erupted, um, like feldspars, tend to break down into clays. So this is a challenge for me, and this is something new that I've had to work with, because in our research, when we're trying to define very specific eruptions and um identifying different layers of ash which were deposited at different times and you know trying to figure out you know we find a specific layer on the land and then we want to figure out if this is the same one we're seeing in the marine sediments or maybe further north Um, some edge deposits went very far away up towards juno we look at the chemical composition of the glasses that are produced during these eruptions because they tend to be quite unique between eruptions. But that's challenging in a place like Sitka where these older ashes have actually been weathered quite a bit and a lot of them have turned into um, clay. So, this is a problem we're dealing with and we're trying to get over and um, it really takes a lot of material.
0: So, so is that the, the, the solution essentially is to get more stuff and, and find the the few shards that are the relatively speaking, fewer shards that are, that are remaining.
1: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, you were, you were with us this summer for a good chunk of the work we were doing and we were just going to a lot of different places and we're um, sampling a lot of different sections. And we're just hoping that when we process these, we'll be able to get material and enough material that's not weathered to the point where we can't tell where it originated from. Um, so that, that's definitely a big part of it. We, we did a lot of recollection this summer. And then some mapping of some really interesting um, deposits as well, which was exciting.
0: Yeah, I I have a couple of questions about the, the mapping, but before that, I guess, uh, just to to be clear, I, I'm inferring from what you're saying that essentially once the glass breaks down into clays, presumably the clays are more mobile and so forth, so there isn't, you, you don't have the clean signature, so to speak, that, that allows you to uniquely identify the layers at that point anymore.
1: Exactly. Um, Sometimes we can turn to some of the more robust minerals um, to help us out. But generally, once the glass breaks down, everything gets a lot harder.
0: Mm. And so from a a standpoint of identification of these layers, the uh, things that you're looking for in the glass are are variable enough between eruptions that it allows you to pretty uniquely identify a, a particular eruptive event or ash deposit event uh no matter where you happen to find a layer that that you know because the wind could be blowing in a different direction on a different eruption so you might have some in further away places i suppose like one eruption from edgcum might show up but another one might show up in a you know far away place in a in a much different direction whereas they're all showing up you know around sitka where we're close
1: exactly yeah and i have to admit you know, one of the challenges with Edgecombe is that um, some of its eruptions, the geochemical signature or its fingerprint is, they're very similar between the different eruptions. And that has been a little bit problematic. And that's where um, very detailed mapping actually becomes very important because we, if we can start looking on the landscape and mapping as many of these ashes as possible in different directions, we also get a sense of what um, we would expect to see in terms of how many ash beds to be deposited where we might find them, where they thin out. And I think you got a bit of a sense of how we were trying to do that this summer when we were driving all over Harbor Mountain, um, mapping the different exposures on the road cuts. And eventually about the fourth or fifth time, we noticed that there was a real pattern and that at the bottom, you know, when we start seeing the ashes show up, there was, a dark ash, a dark ash, and then an orange ash, a dark ash, an orange ash. And then we started seeing that repetition of that process in different areas.
0: Yeah, I remember it I remember that and it became much more clear when, you know, um you and your 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 co co-field workers there were shaving out the things with your sharp tools and smoothing them out, you know. Uh, and and then you could really kind of see that because, you know, when the surface is just kind of there and it's a little bit, you know, stuff's blended a little bit or whatever. But you get these really distinctive layers. And I, I find that, you know, I didn't spend enough quality time with them to to have them as styled in as I'm sure you all did. But but I feel like I'm starting to, you know, there's those cup, like those paired black bands, essentially, yeah. uh, that seem to show up in a, in a certain place. And I, so I feel like I'm starting to notice, like in some cases, I only see one of those. Um, and in another case, there's two of them. And I'm, I, that is one thing that, uh, it, you know, being out in the field with you all opened my eyes, I guess I'll say it and it expanded my awareness a little bit because it was easy before just to go, Oh, well, that's all volcanic ash. And, you know, it all looks the same, so to speak, sort of glossing over the fact that that's, you know, potentially thousands of years of eruptive history. That's just exposed there, uh, from very different times um but they're just kind of mashed together in my mind because i just treated it as ash and so with you all like carefully looking through and and looking at the layers and then sampling from each layer individually uh and and being careful you know as best you can not to mix them um started to yet pique my uh, or or develop my attention and, and ability to discern i guess is what i'll say uh, that there are these differences there, and so for folks that live in Sitka that might be listening to this it's it 's uh, worth it you know there 's many trails and and ro- roads around town that have ash exposures and uh, if there 's a relatively vertical wall, and even sometimes if it 's not, you can definitely see these clear clear bands of of different ash deposits and it 's at least worth worth giving a look at, I would say, and so your goal then so, so part of it is just sequencing, I suppose that the deeper stuff is is pretty clearly older stuff um, there 's no reason to think that things got jumbled and, and I remember you saying you, you actually look for places where you, you don 't want jumbled um, exactly but, yeah but the, and then and then the other thing that that i hadn 't realized until uh, you know two summers ago when when there was the whole group there and and folks were looking for little. Little tiny bits of black, because that's a question that I'd wondered before, you know, if there's hundreds and thousands of years between eruptions, then that's plenty of time. You know, ash doesn't grow stuff super well, but stuff grows. So there's enough time for organic matter to be deposited. And there aren't, generally speaking, it doesn't look like there's an obvious thick layer of organics, but, um, but there can be these little black fibers, which are essentially old charcoal, I guess, uh, from things that were organic and, and charred, but were buried and didn't like completely go away. And that's, if I'm remembering correctly, that's how you used to, to get ages for layers.
1: Yeah. And that's actually, <laughs> that's one of our biggest challenges is we depend largely when it comes to, in a geologic sense, these deposits are quite young. You know the the ones that we're looking at, anyway. You know we're we're largely focused on the eruptions that have happened from Edgecombe and the Edgecombe volcanic field in the last, say, fifteen thousand years, and we're dependent on what we call radiocarbon dating, which is um, organic matter, where radiocarbon breaks down over time. You know, when we're alive, we we have this constant uh, intake of carbon-14, which is a, a different isotope of carbon. And once we die, it breaks down. And it can get us... We, we understand exactly how this system works. And if we get an... Or, it takes us back to about 50,000 years in the happiest sense, maybe forty or 30,000 if we're being a more realistic, I suppose. Um, so we really depend on radiocarbon a lot in trying to date the different ages of the ash deposits, but we need to find organic material that was killed or died around the same time that these ash deposits occurred to figure out how old they are. And, that can be challenging, especially if you have a series of eruptions that happen one after the other after the other, because you don't necessarily have a lot of time for vegetation, for example, to recolonize a landscape after it's been blanketed by an ash. So that's something that we really focused on this summer, because even though um, the older eruptions from Mount Edgecombe are a little bit better understood, we still don't have, especially, you know, in the Sitka area, a very good understanding of when these eruptions actually happen. So, you know, like you mentioned, I think, you know, people who might be running along the trails behind town will come by these deposits and they see the ash and they know the ash and they're like, oh, this all happened in one event. But it's not one event. It's, it's multiple events and it's multiple events that probably happened over one or 2,000 years. But we don't have a very great idea of exactly what the time represented by these ash deposits are. So that was something we worked a lot on this summer as we drove around Harbor Mountain Trail and we went on to the trails behind town was looking more carefully at these different deposits and trying to find like a tiny little piece of charcoal or a tiny little piece of organic matter that we thought was around this, you know, produced around the same time that that ash deposit happened to try to figure out exactly what time is represented in those eruptions. Um, and and that's very important because, you know, if if that, I don't know what it is, it's about like two meters plus worth of ash was one event, like that's pretty, that's hugely significant. That's very different in terms of hazards and impacts than what we actually see, which is, oh, geez, I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking back to the mapping we've done the last couple of years where we're looking at, at least seven, maybe eight different events um, and probably spread out over a thousand years, like you said. So, but we don't know as much as we would like to. Um, So we're going through and this is something we're doing right now is we collected a lot of samples this summer and we're looking through them to try to figure out, you know, is there a material in there that we can date where we can actually figure out how long it took for these ashes to actually deposit on the landscape? And that has a lot of, um, I guess, uh, I guess, you know, when you think about how resilient communities in the area would be to an eruption from Edgecombe now, you know, it's thinking about the fact that we're more likely to see one centimeter or five centimeters of ash deposit over a single event versus a meter. You know that that's very different.
0: So you know, you mentioned you got into this with marine deposits. Were those deposited? Like, like I guess I don't know because the sea level has been so different here, uh, relatively speaking, o- over over time post ice age. Uh, I don't know. Do you know if those deposits were deposited while it was underwater, or or while it was in the air? And and does the depth of water change how a deposit? Like I would imagine that. I don't know if it happens this way, but I would imagine that ash falling in deeper water would tend to sort more than it falling in shallow water or falling in air, so to speak, uh, just because of the way that the things go through the water, but I don't know if that's actually true or not. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious about, about, about that.
1: Well, you're 100% right. So first um, the marine cores we looked at were deep enough that they would have been still underwater even when sea level was quite low during the height of glaciation. Um, so these ashes were deposited through a water column Um, and yeah, they sort when you have an eruption and the ash is falling, like I mentioned before, you know, you've got this mix of really glassy, pumicey material and minerals and even rock fragments. So depending on the the density or the different masses of that material, as it moves through the water column, you'll get some, what we call grading in the geology world in a deposit. So you'll tend to get the heavier stuff at the bottom and then the lighter stuff towards the top. But it still tends to settle out relatively quickly. Um, so you do get a a nice, in an ideal world, layer that's associated with a single eruption. So, um, yeah, and the marine records that we looked at were really nice because they weren't actually exposed on land. And the the problem with things on land is that you have other processes like weather, um, not weathering, but weather in this case, which can remove sediment and deposits and actually erode materials. So you might have something happen, but then remove evidence of that later on. So, the The marine records are a really good um record, especially during deglaciation so when the the glaciers were retreating of the eruptions coming from Edgecombe because you had them falling out into the ocean, being deposited at the bottom of the ocean and then being covered by sediment being washed off of you know retreating glaciers and everything. So you, you created this incredible record of um, sediment accumulation that included a lot of ash beds.
0: And so the, in, in those marine sediments, the glass does not weather into clay nearly as quickly as it tends to on land around here?
1: No, no. So we have excellent data from... The marine sediments and what we're trying to do now and this is this is new for me because you know i i never had until the last couple years the samples that i wanted to look at um, to compare to what i had looked at in the marine deposits so we're we're just starting to work on that now where we're trying to figure out what they they look like on land. Um, and just by going out in the field and collecting them and feeling how clay they are, you know, we know we're going to have some problems. But um, I'm really hopeful that there'll be enough pristine material in them to to hopefully tie in a little bit into the marine records. And And this is, you know, a point that you made earlier is really significant where we have a mountain or a volcano that erupts, but wind plays a very important role. And these marine records we're looking at, you know, they're, they're offshore. They're essentially on the opposite side of Kruzloff Island than Sitka. And um, so we know depending on the eruption and the wind direction that we're probably not gonna get exactly the same eruption record from the Marine cores than we are going to get on land because they're in opposite directions. And the whole point is that we look at the marine records, we look at sequences to the north, we look at, you know, sequences around Sitka, we look at the geochemistry of those, we try to figure out if we can date them, and then we try to tie them together. And collectively, when we look essentially, you know, 360 degrees around the volcano, hopefully... We get a full picture of what it's done over the last, say, 16,000 years. Prior to that is a little bit more difficult because um, there might be some areas on Kruzov potentially, that were never covered in ice, but a lot of the region was covered in ice. And annoyingly enough, when a gigantic glacier moves over a landscape, it removes... (laughs) The material that was deposited beforehand so trying to figure out what that volcano did in terms of the ash deposits is a little bit tricky prior to when the ice sheets were in the region
0: so so sort of best case scenario here over time you create a catalog of of this is what a particular eruption looks like. So you can at least tie the layers together in different locations over time because you only need, I mean, I guess ideally you'd have two or three, but it doesn't need that mean that every location needs to has have the ability to get dates for a layer. If you can sort of get some organic material that allows you to date a particular layer at a particular location and you can tie that layer in, then that allows you to, you know, start to to paint this this broader picture over time, of what's exactly. happening, uh, and then I guess it's kind of like you can start to get a sense, perhaps, of I guess there can be di- directionality in an explosion, but but also then the, the wind direction, the weather of the time, essentially uh, ancient ancient weather reports, I guess, of uh, based on the relative deposits i suppose if if you know one particular eruption is particularly heavy to the west and light to the east then that would suggest you know either a directionality to the eruption or or wind direction i suppose so that like like in in the ideal scene you had all the money in the world and all the time in the world to to do all the sampling you could possibly ever want and then analyze that sampling Uh, as i've come to find that sampling is often the easy part (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's, it's
0: the time it's the time dealing with the samples that that actually is the more difficult part that that's the sort of thing that that one could conceivably build a, a model for a, a, the history.
1: Exactly. And it's like you said it's you know collecting the samples um you know we can do a lot of that in a few years but analyzing them Processing them, understanding them takes a lot more time, and uh, but that's you know that's something that we're we're working towards. We're really we kicked this off last year when we came, and we definitely have hopes to keep on doing this research because Southeast Alaska, in particular, is it's a really absolutely fascinating place. It's this unique area where we have um, these challenges of, you know, peopling of the new world, migration of animals, glaciation, refugia, so areas on the landscape that potentially were not glaciated, So were safe havens for animals and people? Volcanism. So how did volcanic activity um, potentially respond? So this is, you know, one thing that we have a big question about is do certain volcanic systems actually respond to deglaciation? So when glaciers retreat, there's a lot of depressurization on the crust. And then sea level change, like what happens? Like when you think about how heavy water is, you know, you pick up a liter of water, two liters of water, and then you think about um, sea level being really low and then going high and dropping again and, and the impacts that might have had on the landscape in terms of the land being exposed above and below land. It's just, Southeast Alaska is this, incredible puzzle of both geology questions and um, biology questions that are really important in terms of North America in general and, and understanding these really complex processes. And this is why we're here and this is why we're so interested in this area and Feel I feel really lucky that I've had the opportunity to come up the last two years because it's also one of the most beautiful places I've ever been.
0: Well, I might be biased, but I'll I'll certainly agree with you <laughs> on that on that point. Uh, the uh, and I know you've had a chance to work work elsewhere as as mm-hmm. well, and so I imagine you're doing these kind of of you know looking at these kinds of questions for other volcanoes and in other places and really. Because of the nature, well, one of your, one of the folks that was here with you this summer, I think was, I don't remember the term, but, but basically looking for really tiny, like not even enough to make a layer, but basically little, little bits of, of stuff
1: Crypto-tephra.
0: Okay. Crypto-tephra. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so small that, that good luck finding it, but, but I guess that's what grad students do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but having that that catalog and then being able to say oh well this probably came from this volcano but the only way that works is if you have a database of uh, a library a catalog of of essentially samples that are known from particular deposits and then you can link them up in that way so that seems like a much bigger process you know Edgcomb being a, a little microcosm of that I suppose in some respects
1: yeah that's uh and that's a probably the biggest thing that my lab does is we analyze a enormous amount of samples <laughs> we try to create um what I call geochemical fingerprints for ash deposits from all sorts of different volcanoes um, so if we encounter them in different regions and areas, we can identify them and that is a, a really important part of what we do. And it, it's one of the reasons why I got so interested in Edgecom is that, um, that kind of data was really limited for Edgecombe when we started working on it. And, um, so we've created a geochemical data set now that hopefully will be really useful for people going forward in the future and for our own work, um, because most of the data we have right now is from the marine realm. But hopefully we'll be able to start tying into what we see on land around Sitka to what we see in the marine. And then we get a much more thorough idea of what EDGCOME has actually been doing over the last, you know, 15,000 years. Because that's ultimately what we're really curious about.
0: Mm. And how far, just out of curiosity, how far would you, might you expect to be able to detect Edgem Ash, uh, in in I guess in these crypto tephra sorts of scenarios where where it's not really a layer, but like how far away is it traveling?
1: Well, I I'm not sure um, we're so. I mean, we haven't found it as what we call a crypto tephra yet which is this, and you know, it's, it's, it's an ash bed essentially, like, or that you see, but just so far away that you can't see it with a naked eye. We have to find it microscopically. Um, But I suspect that we will in, especially in some of the places that we looked this year, because in um, when we were in Juneau this year, we went to a site And, oh my goodness, it was serious. I mean, I'm a total geek here, but it was honestly one of the most beautiful ash deposits I've ever seen in my life. And it was uh, Mount Edgecombe ash that was visible um, in Juneau and quite significant. So we're talking, I guess we're about 150, 160 kilometers away at least as the crow flies. So... I suspect we will find it further afield. Um, we're doing projects now that um, I suspect we might find it but um it's also timing because a lot of these eruptions happened about you know thirteen and a half thousand years ago um, and at that time, if you move inland, a lot of areas in Interior, BC, Alaska, and Yukon were actually, they still had some ice covering them. So um, we didn't necessarily have the best spots to preserve, preserve those older ashes anyway. One thing I'm, I'm very curious about is um, just this past summer here at the University of Alberta, um, we have the Canadian Ice Core Laboratory here, and they went up to Mount Logan in the Mount Logan ice cap in the St. Elias ice field, so not horribly far away. And they collected a new ice core, about just over 300 meters worth of ice. And we don't know, obviously, how far back it goes, but when we think about previous um, samples that were collected in the area, I'm guessing that we are probably going far enough back to get, you know, maybe 15, 16,000 years ago. And it's places like this where I would be looking for ash from Edgecombe. And it's definitely one of my targets We're we're actually, you know, I'm going to throw this out there. We're looking for a PhD student now to start working on this new ice core because they just collected it this summer And um, we're actively recruiting a PhD student to start working on looking at um, the ash deposits in this core. And for sure, potentially um, one of our targets is going to be looking at Edgecombe. And it's really important because we need to figure out how old the ice in this ice core is. And one of the ways to do this is by looking at the ash deposits.
0: Yeah, that seems like an interesting question uh, and maybe <laughs> a, lot, <laughs> a lot of work with microscopes and, and ice water, I guess. Uh, I suppose oh, you yes. and, and see what you can <laughs> find in it. Yeah, I remember, uh, I don't remember his name, but the, but the, your, your student who's going to be, I think, doing a lot of the work with the ash deposits from here. And he was describing it. He sounded like he was pretty keen on it. And I was like, wow, that sounds nightmarish to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be Sean. Yeah, there's it's It's hard work, you know, there's there's no doubt about it. But um, the results hopefully are interesting and they give us a lot of insight into the volcanic processes in that area. And um, it's something that I'm really looking forward to sharing with the people of Sitka as we slowly figure this out, hopefully figure it out.
0: Yeah, well I'll I'll definitely be curious and and crossing fingers that you'll find enough glass and <laughs> that hasn't turned to clay to be to to allow you to to do the things that you need to do with it and um yeah, I'm so going forward, you know, in your sort of ideal scenario, you would presumably do more sampling around the area and like how, how do you sort of consider and and you know aim, like what is it you're aiming for when you're when you're doing sampling in terms of a spatial distribution and and obviously you just you need sites where there's ash available um, and and that you can get to both of those are pretty important <laughs> but but assuming that all could work out, like w- what is it that you look for in terms of of places that you'd like to sample in an ideal world?
1: Well, um, next year, we're hoping to get on to cruise off itself. You know, as you briefly alluded to earlier, um, Jim Bachal got on to cruise off and they did some really quick risk reconnaissance work that hadn't been done in a really long time and found some really amazing um, deposits that we want to look at in more detail. So that'll give us a perspective a little bit closer to the volcano But also, you know, just um, a call out to the citizens of Sitka, you know, we're always interested in um, anyone who sees anything interesting. And, you know, as you know, Matt, when you were out with us this year, we don't have much of a problem with the lower ash deposits. So these are... You know, we have these really dark ashes and a series of deposits. And then we get into the lighter ones and the orangey ones. um, And that's where a lot of the landslides and the failures happen in that material. So we don't have a very good um, sense of what the deposits around Sitka look like in the, the younger part so the the upper part of that eruption sequence, because it's so often mixed up because it's slumping and moving and shifting. So, um, you know, for me, if we could find a spot, maybe it's someone digging a foundation for a new house or I don't know, anything going on where all of a sudden we get... Uh, a really nice exposure of that upper part of the ash sequence, that would be fantastic. And I, I would love to know about that because it's a real, um, it's a real problem in our mapping. And it, it, it challenges our understanding of the more recent eruptions from Edgecombe because w- yeah, we just, we just don't know that much about the upper part.
0: Mm-hmm. And would that be more likely? And I suppose it would be more likely that those are, haven't been churned up in a place where it's relatively flat.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, when we were at off Jarvis street in the bog and we were coring it, you know, that's one of the things we were doing is we're going to places where we think the landscape's a little bit flatter and you may have a little bit less displacement, but ultimately, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot and yeah, we're, I'm totally open to citizen science here. You know, if someone, if someone sees something cool, feel free to reach out. You know, I'm, I'm always here hanging out and um, we're, we're definitely just trying to keep um, our eyes open and take advantage of anything new that might be exposed in the Sitka area.
0: Well, I know I've definitely been noticing with uh, more consistency the places where they're often, often it's with road cuts, and those are often on slopes because of the way that the roads work, you know, the uphill side will tend to cut in more. And so then you see those ash deposits, but I've been trying to keep my eyes open. And I suppose in the area, more generally, there may be places with logging roads or something where people recreate that have some cuts that are you know, reasonably accessible, but, but most people won't be seeing them because relatively few people are visiting those places. And so, uh, you know, those might be, if, if anybody listening to this is exploring some of those areas and noticing ash cuts, you know, I, I've just generally taken pictures with my cell phone, which usually geo-references them. And then, and then I share them with, uh, share them with people that I think might be interested.
1: Yeah. The, I mean, that spot that you've uh, found on the Thimbleberry Lake trail was fantastic.
0: Yeah, that one, uh, it seemed like a pretty big cut. You know, the funny thing is you walk by there all the time and you don't really think about it. And I, Like I had this vague memory that there was ash cuts along Thimbleberry Lake and I went there I was like, wow, this is actually a really big one.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. So, yeah. I yeah, we're just really curious to see what people see and... It's just, yeah, like you said, you know, you might walk by it every single day and it's only when someone talks to you and says, hey, that might be cool that you're like, whoa, hold on. That is cool.
0: <laughs> well, um, yeah, we kind of reached the end of our time here. I appreciate your your time. And um, yeah, I, I would be happy to forward anything on if folks find it. But if they want to get in touch with you directly, is there a good way to do that?
1: Yeah, um, I'm pretty easy to find online. Um, Britta Jensen, B-R-I-T-T-A-J-E-N-S-E-N. I'm at the University of Alberta and I have a faculty website there with an email address that is really accessible. Um, For those who are in social media, I'm not actually a very social media type person, but We have started a Twitter profile. We are the Volcanic Ash Research Group, so VARG, (laughs) at um, the University of Alberta. Um, we're pretty easy to find. Um, So feel free to send me an email or send a tweet or whatever um, interests you. And we're pretty good at responding. And we actually do have an email, which is varg, V-A-R-G, at ualberta.ca for the lab.
0: Mm, Nice. Well, thanks. I appreciate your your time and look forward to you know hopefully a hearing in in a year or two or i don't know how long it'll take but uh some some not too distant future uh about some of the results that are coming out and maybe get a chance to get out in the field again next year
1: yeah oh my gosh i'm so excited about getting on to cruise off i really want to get out um next year so mm, sounds like fun <laughs> yeah hopefully we'll see you again
0: <laughs> yep sounds good thanks thanks matt You've been listening to a conversation I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Britta Jensen of the University of Alberta, Canada. I want to thank her for taking some time to visit with me and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.